0: taking you inside the world of music this is inside music cast with rick such and eddie cabello on this episode inside music cast welcomes bernard purdy
1: welcome to inside music cast the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music that means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside
2: out i'm eddie cabello and i'm rick such Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage
1: and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started.
2: Bernard Purdy is a rhythmic legend that has painted his mark on the American music landscape. From jazz, country, soul, and rock, Bernard Purdy's legendary drumming techniques are still revered and remain relevant today. He's not only a legend, but he's a man who is also a teacher, continuing to influence young musicians to this day. He's considered the most recorded drummer in the world and has played with almost everyone in the business, names such as Aretha Franklin, Joe Cocker, B.B. King, Hall & Oates, Quincy Jones, Marvin Gaye, Cat Stevens, Steely Dan, Miles Davis, and the list goes on. On this episode of Inside Music Cast, Bernard talks with us about his challenges of making it into the music business, his famous Purdy shuffle, his friendship with Jeff Porcaro, and other experiences from his amazing career of session work. Inside Music Cast welcomes a true music legend, Bernard Purdy. Hey Bernard, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Welcome. Hey, you know, just going way back, you were the 11th of 15 children. (laughs) Right. So go back. Tell me a little bit about the the pretty household when you were growing up.
3: (laughs) Well, it was really quite simple. Uh, My father worked. My grandfather, my mother stayed at home. See, I thought that my mother didn't work.
0: Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you find out things later as you grow older. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, my father had two jobs every day. Holy cow. And uh, I thought that my mother didn't work, just took care of us. <laughs> <laughs> that job was 24-7. Yep. Oh, my goodness. And I didn't know that that was a job. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, growing up in the household... I was the uh, the bum.
2: Bum. Well, what do you mean by that?
3: I was spoiled a little bit. Oh, because I was a, a brainiac. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Uh huh. And if they didn't kind of do things my way, then I'd run and tell on everybody.
1: <laughs> Just like most brainiacs do,
3: huh? Yeah, and I got my butt beat all the time because <laughs> <Did you> <laughs> uh, I was a tattletale. Ooh. Yeah. But that was uh, where it was, and that's how we grew up, and I still had to take care of my three younger sisters and one younger brother. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you always had a job. hmm And uh, the others that were older, six I didn't even know, and I just didn't know them. Yeah. The four older brothers, you know, I always tried to emulate them. Right, yeah. And I had my hand-me-downs, and I was the happiest person in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't tell me I wasn't uh, wasn't rich. That's number one. Yeah. Right. Somebody had the notion to tell me that I was poor, <laughs> and I had a fight. Wow! I was fighting like cats and dogs because I'm not poor. Yeah. And I don't know what you're talking about, and this, that, and the other. And I got into more fights than the barrel of monkeys because I didn't know we were poor. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't prove it by me. hmm Because I had my clothes and everything else I had my hand-me-downs and I was the happiest person in the world
0: that's right yeah
3: so it was a way of life for me and it was great
1: big family you loved it didn't you
3: oh I loved
1: it my dad comes from a family of 12 and he was Mm -hmm. raised in South Texas and uh and I tell you, he told me stories very – almost similar to yours a little bit that, the, you know, he was one of the 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 youngest. But there were older sisters and brothers that he really didn't even know himself because he was part of the younger gang, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there was almost like two or three segments of uh, of siblings there. And, and the other ones were already practically out of the house. They're working or whatever and all the, the little runs, you know, running around the house with them. So they really didn't know each other. So I understand what you're saying, you know?
3: It was a big thing. Yeah. I mean, it really was. And it, it – the living quarters, the, the whatever we, we did, it was three of us in a bed. Yeah, uh, two from one way and and in the middle, mm-hmm. one, you know, the opposite. I mean, that was just a way of life, and that was cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, the feet, the, the feet smell, uh, it was there, <laughs> but you got used <laughs> to that, and yeah. you go on and sleep. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So it's the, so it wasn't. Uh, there was no animosity. Right, right. Nothing like that. Just just enjoyed doing things. We all did things together.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. It was just family.
3: It was just family.
1: Just family. In the in the middle of all the you know, the you know, growing up and, and you're young and there's family and so forth. So how did music sort of trickle in? Were there other influences inside in your in your home as you were growing up? Uh, an older sibling, your mom, or uh
3: that nobody was, played music. In my house. Really? Really? I was the first one to play an instrument.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
3: Now, we all sang in church, Uh but nobody played an instrument. Right. Now, I was the first, and uh, I was playing uh, my mother's pots and pans by the time I was three. And uh, by the time I was six, she bought a second set of pots and pans.
2: Okay, just for you. Nope.
3: Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Because I had already bent mine all up. (laughs) She told me not to touch the new one. You have those? Yeah, she brought them out, showed it to me, and said, See it? That's great. Now don't touch it. (laughs) That's right. I knew what that meant.
1: These pants are going to feed you, and the other ones, (laughs) you pound pound those away.
3: Yeah, she gave me those. She gave me. The ones that I beat up on, and uh, that was cool. That that, that still worked. <laughs> so I know at one time I did look at the new ones.
2: Yeah,
3: I just I looked.
2: Right. Uh oh.
3: And <laughs> I, I I don't think I was about to touch. I was just looking. Uh huh. And she said something to me, boy, in that voice. I said, No more, no, no, no I'm not touching. I'm not going to play anymore. I,
2: <laughs> you know what you're doing, Bernard? You're, you're making me think of my own childhood. Oh, jeez! <laughs> I can see my mom looking at me right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, because they had to look. Yeah, oh, yeah. They right. had to look. Exactly. And that's all you had to do. Uh-huh. Didn't have to say anything else. She said it once. Hmm. Don't do something. You don't do it.
1: Mom's looking peel paint, man. I tell you. So so when when okay, let's, let's transition here for the, from your first professional set of, of pots and pans that you practice on here to the real drums. You were you what age? Well, I got my
3: first set of drums uh-huh. which was uh what I called them real drums. Right. I mean, they were <laughs> <laughs> uh they were the small drums, but I got that set at 6 when I was 6 years old. Wow. And that's what I learned to play on. Interesting. And then from there, I played between 7 and 8, 9 and 10. I was playing at my teacher's, playing on his drums. Uh-huh. But I finally got my own real set, as everybody calls it, a real set, yeah. when I was 13. Really? Almost 13 and a half.
1: What kind of a set was that, you remember?
3: It was a Rogers Scottish plant. Really? Mm-hmm. There wasn't before sets made, they tell me. Okay. And uh, I had one of them. You know what Scottish fad looked like, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's what mine looked. And yeah. they were single tension. Yeah. But they were beautiful.
1: Were they really, huh?
3: They were gorgeous <laughs> to
1: me. <laughs> sounded just as good, too, huh?
3: They sounded wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I, to me, I, I I thought they sounded marvelous.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, you started uh, learning. You know, you had a teacher, but,
3: you know, you... Yeah, cr- well, it was my teacher that kept me on the straight and narrow path. Mm-hmm, really? His name was Leonard Haywood. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, with Mr. Haywood, he knew that I had the gift. Now, I didn't know what that meant. All I knew was he wouldn't let me play the drums <laughs> in the band.
1: Uh-huh. Really?
3: No. Okay. I had to play another instrument, and the other instrument was trumpet. Check Mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't play the trumpet. (laughs) Didn't matter. But that's what I had to do. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even about that. He knew what he was doing because he wanted me to learn music. Right. Didn't have anything to do with anything else except learn music. Sure. So I did that, and about a year and a half, almost two years later, I thought that he was going to let me play the drums, and then he said, Nope, we have another opening, which is flute. Right. <laughs> so I played flute uh-huh. for about a year. So for me, I went from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs>
0: That's funny.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just something that happened. You uh-huh. know? But I, now, of course, m- many years later, he realized what he was doing. Yeah, right. And uh, I was happy, you know, but at the time, Mm right. I resented. I actually resented the idea of having to play another instrument when I was the best drummer they had in the whole school. Right. <laughs> but he knew what he needed to do to make things work for me. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that probably ended up being a, one of probably one of the more valuable things that you, you learned before you. Oh yeah. You, yeah. Because definitely.
3: I was playing big band by the time I was eight, nine, and ten. Yeah. Well. Wow. And at that time, if you didn't know what the trumpet lines were right. mm-hmm. or the brass lines, mm-hmm. you were up the creek. Right. So he knew that that's what I had to learn, and, uh, and that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got it. And that's why it was easy for me to play the big band.
2: Growing up young in the 1940s and 50s, who were some of your musical influences?
3: I still had Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Mm -hmm, uh, Lloyd Price, Mm -hmm. um, Ray Charles, and on top of everything else, Floyd Kramer. Mm -hmm. Floyd Kramer was my all-time favorite piano player. Nobody could play the piano like him. (laughs) And that's where I really learned to play country music. Mm -hmm. But I also learned to sing country music. Oh, really? really? Mm-hmm. A couple of songs that I did was uh, put a, nick, another nickel in the Lodium.
0: Yeah, uh-huh.
2: right.
3: Yeah, Teresa Brewer. That's right. Okay. And then all the stuff that uh, Williams. You're
2: talking Hank Williams?
3: Yeah, Hank okay. Williams. Uh-huh. Um, and I was uh, superb yodel.
2: Are you serious? <laughs> superb. You still yodel today? Oh, yeah. Do you? Yeah. I love it. I, I, I do it every
3: once in a while. Be you know, really? And I just have a good time. I'd you ask do. you to
2: do it, but I don't want you to wake your neighbors.
3: No, I, I agree.
2: Because <laughs> you can't, lo- you can't uh,
1: yodel quietly, can you? you, have to. No. you have to put, it's no all or nothing. Doing it quietly. It's all or nothing, huh? <laughs>
0: hmm.
1: No, I I understand that uh, you know during this time, you know you're talking about a lot of the horn-based influence, you know, music like Count Basie and and, uh, and and so forth. The big bands, you know, around that time, all all the music was really tons tons of horns. There, I mean, on the on the pop scene, well,
3: besides tons of horns, mm-hmm. there were also was dance music.
0: Yeah, right,
1: see, exactly.
3: all this was dance music. Mm-hmm. No matter what we did, that's what she had to do mm-hmm. because. Uh, It was a way of life. I also, at the time, was doing all the organ groups. Bill Doggett, Johnny Hammond. Just about anyone that you can think of. I mean, I didn't do Jimmy Smith at the time, but I did Jimmy Smith in the 60s. Yeah, Um, okay. Not in the 50s. All right. Mm -hmm. But see, I had played with Bill Doggett in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Because everybody that came through Maryland, I got a chance to play with. Yeah. That's where I also played with Ray Charles, James Brown, and all these other acts. Yeah, so it was a big thing to me. But the you know the local boy, local kid does good. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I had a good time doing it. But uh, there were all the groups, every group that I played with, dance music. Right, that's what it was. Yeah, you had to dance, big swing, man. Yep, to swing, put... Put it
2: in. you got to
3: dance.
2: Tell me a little bit about the uh, this Hitmaker sign, the If You Need Me, Call Me signs that you made and, and left in the studios. <laughs> oh, those things got you some gigs, didn't they?
3: Oh, they got me lots of gigs. And there was a guy named Jimmy Tyrell, uh-huh. who's the one who caused me to do that. Really? Uh-huh. I lived across the street from a sign maker. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even know he was there, because directly across the street from me was... Uh, where I got my laundry stuff done. Uh-huh. Well right next door there was a printer, you know, did signs and stuff. So I was at hundred and seventy second and Washington Avenue, where I was living. So one day after Jimmy Tyrell kept telling me about doing some sign, I got no time. What are you tell <laughs> Well I went over there. I happened to walk on the other side of the cleaners and I saw this sign guy. And I just you know I'd like to make up a sign," he says. "What? Okay, all right." And uh, he said, "Well, tell me what you want." So I told him what I wanted, and he says, "Okay, well, let me let me think about it and come back later this afternoon." Let me uh, let me see what I can do. So I had given him uh, a couple of songs and things that I had already done and right. people, yeah. I had been working with, and one of the slogans was, If you need me, call me. Uh The little old hit maker. Mm -hmm. Well, when I got back, the man had three different signs made up. (laughs) And it was so colorful. And each one of them had its own little thing in it. But it also had it where there was no telephone number. And I said, Well, why didn't you put the telephone number? He said, No, (laughs) this is a conversation piece. Uh-huh. Let them ask you for the number.
0: Uh-huh. Good idea. There you go. I said, Whoa.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I got it. And if you need me, call me. Pretty Purdy. The little old hit maker. Yeah. Call me. Pretty Purdy. You <laughs> know I mean? Each sign was, was, was different. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was so nice. Once I put up the signs, I put them on two stands behind me, I was ready to play. <laughs> so the producers all loved it. Every producer that I can, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it, keep it. <laughs> I like And it was, it, it became like a thing because I had been with uh, uh, with so many years with with the signs that I had producers that wouldn't allow me in the studio without my sign. <laughs> That's funny. Because they've been making hit records.
0: That's yeah. <laughs>
3: And it worked out all the way, you know, right to my advantage Mm -hmm. all those years.
1: So this sign maker wasn't really a sign maker. He was a marketing genius. That's right.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Gee whiz, he did a whole campaign for you. But after that, you started seeing signs popping up for every instrument out there, right? Every 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 player out there.
3: (laughs) Oh, no. They wouldn't do that. (laughs) That was your thing. Yeah, nobody wanted to do that. I mean, I created something in somebody else to do it now, that would mean second and third place and <laughs> nah. They ain't doing it.
2: That's
3: great. They so it w- thought it would die out right away, but yeah. it didn't. That's,
2: a, that's yeah. great.
3: It stayed there for a long, long time. Look at that.
1: What was it that brought you to New York City in 1960 uh, when you, when you made...
3: Well, make when music? I came to New York, I had a group from Baltimore where we had been playing. Yeah, And uh, we came to New York after we finished and closed our job on a Sunday night, arrived at five thirty six 6 o'clock in the morning uh, at 165th Street in Comet. Okay. So we came in town trying to get us a gig. And sure enough, we did. We got a gig at the Comet Club. Uh-huh. And uh, that worked for us. They took a liking to us and asked us to play in the club. So, that was fine. Yeah. We actually played for tips. And that's fine because we didn't know what to charge. Right. Or, you know, what the scales and things were. So, we sure. we worked things out. So, we worked for the door. Mm-hmm. And that really worked in our favor because the guy who owned the club yep. means that he got a band, didn't cost him anything, and he was making lots of money.
1: Yep, yep. <laughs> He's selling plenty of the drinks. Yep, he yep. got it.
3: And yep. after a while, after... Two or three months, then he wanted to offer us money because he was making more at the door. We were making too much, (laughs) so he wanted a piece (laughs) of the door. Uh. So we kind of had to turn around and tell him, "No, we, uh, you know, this is you gave us this, let us keep it." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He did, so we ended up keeping it for about a year, and then we basically we stopped. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the group itself only lasted for a couple of weeks.
2: What kind of, what kind of music did you play? I mean, what were we doing originals or were we doing covers?
3: We did both. Uh-huh. Originals and covers uh-huh. and we were doing everything that was needed. Yeah. For uh, you know, for a job. Right. And uh we were actually quite good at it.
1: What musicians did you have? I mean, who, who what were the components of the band?
3: Uh, guitar, bass, okay. keyboard, Sax, drums. Gotcha. Uh And three of the members, we all we sang. We had three of us in the band that sang. Okay. So we 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 did okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. sure. So you landed in New York in 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 1960, and I guess you're about you're about 21 at the time. And aside from you know trying to get gigs, trying to to move up the ladder and get you know in the forefront, what what did a young and budding musician like yourself have to do to land gigs? Yeah, really.
3: Go out and beg. Mm-hmm. That's what you do.
2: Knock yeah. on doors. You
3: have to beg and ask for a chance, and ask for a job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that's what it was like. It had been that way for umpteen years. It didn't change. Yeah, right. You just yeah. got to go out and hustle. Yeah, to get you know to get your job.
0: Right. right. Tell hustling.
3: people that you can do the job, and so get, let somebody give you a shot. Mm-hmm. And if you keep saying it enough, somebody's going to believe it.
1: Yep, it'll give you one shot, and if you get in there, if you mess it up, you don't get more than one. Yeah, you're right. Well, who was it that gave
2: you your shot?
3: The people at the comment, yeah, and uh, the uh, Blue Note. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After the first week, I did a remake of Mickey and Sylvia's "Love Is Strange." Mm
0: -hmm. Okay.
3: And that became bigger than their hit from '55. Uh, Really? Yep, and it was on their own label and stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that all meant. Sure. Uh-huh. but uh, it was on their own thing and their own production and everything else and they made a ton of money from the uh, the remake of it because now they owned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a way of life. We always did covers. We we did cover band. Uh, we wasn't called a cover band but we did covers of sure. other, all the hit records. Right, right. We knew all the hit records. Yep. Didn't matter who it was. Jazz, funk, R and B, Latin, country, gospel, anything that was a hit record that people knew. Yep. We played it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And
3: yeah. that was the way of life if you wanted to work. That's right. That's what you had to do. Yeah. So sure you can stick your 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 own music in every once in a while. People will accept it. But you can't do it on an ongoing base. Yeah. Right. You just got to play what folks know.
1: Hey, that, that's the business these days. I mean, there's cover bands that do cover bands and sneak their own side. I mean, the business hasn't really changed too much when it comes on to music repertoire and what you're playing, you
0: know?
3: No, it hasn't changed much on that. Yeah. The only thing, the way it changes, who's making the money?
0: Right. That's exactly if right. If it's exactly anybody right. that's uh-huh. making it. Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Because all the groups now want to be self-contained. Exactly. Right? They all want the business. How are you going to get the business if you don't know anything about it? That's right. But there are people out there that are waiting to uh, take your money. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Later on in New York, you hooked up with King Curtis. And just for our uh, audience's uh, information, you know, he played Tanner Saxon. I think he even did the session for Yakety Yak back in the fifties, and yes, he and, did. And I, I think he also even wrote uh, the the very famous Mister Bojangles. I mean, he was an incredible talent of a of a musician and a writer, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you hooked up with him and uh, actually uh, jumped on board with what he had going on. Tell, walk us through that a little bit because it became very relevant as to the twists that would uh, to to take you in your career.
3: Well, this is when I also found out about covers.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: He was a cover band. Okay. He covered every hit record that was out there. Okay. And he would go in the studio with his band and play the hit records and do it his way. Just slightly different, but it was always with horns Interesting. and not necessarily with vocal. But uh, yes, he had vocals, vocalists in the band, but right. most of the things were instrumental. So this is what he did. He covered all the hits. But I also found out so much on the business side Mm -hmm. with him. There was a businessman that most people didn't know he was a businessman. Yeah. And when you start talking about what he had been doing in the 50s, not only was it the coasters, the drifters, the platters, everybody you can possibly think of, Curtis, was playing the solos yeah, on all those records. <laughs> and uh, most people didn't know, but he was also picking the records for the A&R folks.
0: Look at that, really.
3: Yeah. It was him that uh, brought Proko Harum, Look at that. Uh, uh, Rolling Stone, and uh, all the different groups to Atlantic. Wow, wow.
1: He brought them. During that time, he uh, actually, of course, with the Kingpins, uh, he was... Um... Leading Aretha Franklin's Backup Band, correct?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh and I was looking at some of the discography that uh, today has uh listed for Aretha and I tell you something, a lot so many of the songs that uh you know were in her albums, he, he was he was the writer and he collaborated on this stuff and
3: he and, collaborated uh, with a lot of it, yeah. but he was also a very talented producer. Uh huh. But he was somebody who stayed in the background all right.
0: the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: He did not try to run out to the forefront. Yeah. He knew what he was doing and he 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 was a good businessman.
1: Yeah, he he seems very uh, apparently wise in in staying in the back and in controlling the the things that he needed to control.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's neat. And he did.
1: Yep. Is it um confirmed a story for us? I mean, I, I know that uh uh Curtis uh, I mean, it was a, a very unfortunate um you know, time when, I guess when 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 he passed away. I mean, he actually got 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 killed in New York City. There, yeah. Um, how did how did it go down? What? How well, did,
3: it went down. Uh, it wasn't in his apartment. It was his building that he just bought, the uh, house.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And it was a uh, guy that was drunk on sitting on his stoop, mm-hmm. and the man that was sitting on his stoop told him that because uh, Curtis told him to get off his stoop and the guy said, well, you don't own nothing around here and, and Curtis, of course, was a big guy yeah. and told him, this is my building, I own it, now get off my stoop and the guy said the same thing again and then Curtis went down to mm-hmm. physically take him off the stoop sure. and the guy came out with the knife. Right, uh-huh. Interesting. And what happened, what really killed him is that and when the guy stabbed him, he stabbed him one time, but Curtis took the knife out hmm. and he severed his own artery.
0: Wow.
3: And of uh mind. but he stabbed the guy six times.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: He wow.
3: he went to the hospital and he's he lived. But Curtis but Curtis died before when the ambulance by the time the ambulance came, yeah, he had lost so much blood.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: The big, big, big loss because at that time he was working with Aretha extensively, correct? Mm-hmm.
3: right? He was the uh, see the Kingpins was his band. Yeah, It wasn't Aretha's band? Mm-hmm. That was and his backup band. Yeah, he had had the band for ten years as the Kingpins, right? And before that, it was just King Curtis's band. But then he, when he decided to call him the Kingpins, it was a big thing because it was a horn band, and uh, nobody. No one around town kept the horn band together like this in 12 pieces. Yeah, yeah. that And he kept busy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just don't, that's a lot of musicians. Sure. To, uh, you know, take around with you all the time. Yeah, yeah. His eight-piece band was the one that worked all the time, every weekend. Really? But he enlarged it to 12 as times went on, when he took it on with a reason. Right,
2: mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just curious to know who some of your influences, you know, that you looked up to in, in the drumming world were as you were honing your own skills. I mean, was there certain uh, drummers that you kind of latched onto or that you tried to emulate or? or oh, yeah. You, yeah. Well,
3: one of my emulation was uh, Papa Joe. Uh-huh. Really? Uh, OK. Yeah. Uh, and I still do it even today. When I play brushes, I become Papa Joe mm-hmm. in my whole mind and body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just, it's just, just a natural for me because I loved him. I loved the way he looked, moved, mm-hmm. how he felt. And I became him when I said, when, anytime I play brushes. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh Louis Belson, yeah. loved him. Uh-huh. Gene Cooper, mm-hmm. superb. Yeah. There are folks that, a lot of folks don't even know mm-hmm. that influenced me. So much. And of course, one of my biggest influences was uh, uh, Mr. Shuffle himself. <laughs> uh, Blakey.
0: Blakey? Blakey. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep.
3: Just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely phenomenal.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Panama Francis, Joe Marshall, right. Stix Evans. I mean, all of these guys were mentors of mine. Right. I mean, I just loved them. Look at that. Uh, Louis Belson was somebody who I was. Always fascinated. You know, then I got to meet them. Uh-huh. And I became even more. <laughs> Look at them. More fascinated with them and and became friends. Look at that. You know, like, uh, it, it was like a super, super big thing for me. Sid Catlett, I didn't know on a personal note. Mm-hmm. But watching him play and, and oh, it, it's, it was something. Yeah, it really, really, really was something for me.
2: Well, was it was it King Curtis that eventually introduced you to Aretha? Is that how you first landed? You know your your uh, your gigs with with Aretha Franklin?
3: Uh, yes, it was. Was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in '65, she was on Columbia Records. She okay. had already made a couple of records on Columbia, mm-hmm. and those records that she made on Columbia, when she finally went to Atlantic, they became instant hits. And Columbia wanted to update their music, you know, to resell it. So it was myself that actually ended up fixing and bringing a band and all to Aretha on Columbia. Mm -hmm. On all of those records that she had on Columbia. Right. To update those records and uh, make a hit for that.
1: Wow. Did you play on the live at Fillmore West? Yes, I did. You were there. I mean, the, the. I mean, that was a major, major recording and uh, famous songs like "Respect" and Eleanor Rigby, "Doctor Feelgood. I mean, just call me. I mean, that that was uh, one one heck of a live recording.
3: Oh, it was yeah. wonderful, and it was my first time getting back with uh, Jerry Wexler. Really? Yeah, we had <laughs> uh, we had a run in a uh, couple of years, about three or four years before that. Yeah. And uh, we were finally back together, and uh, we ended up with hit records, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it worked itself out.
1: Yeah, well, that's a wonderful project, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, I bet you everybody just has uh, incredible memories of that whole session, you know? Oh yeah. That's cool. Um you know, I've uh me and me and Rick are really major Styed Dan fans and of course uh, you know I was gonna talk about this, but um we have seen the D V D, The Making of Asia and you've probably seen that too of the clips. Mm-hmm. And Chuck Rainey and other musicians who contributed to the Asia album, uh, uh, the Steely Dan album. It, it, it's a, it was a very educational um, uh, DVD, but you have a little clip in there where basically you're giving your feedback as to some insight on some cuts uh, on the recording. There, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, <laughs> about that that particular classic album, the sessions that went down on uh, with Steely Dan. That's it's an amazing
3: piece of work. Well, for me, um, what I'm good at, what I'm you know i'm i'm very pleased to say i take direction very well yeah but i also know that i'm a leader i'm a creator and i always like creating no matter what so i'm always going to try to do that but i do take direction very seriously and i go in to do my job mm-hmm. my yeah. job is to give you exactly what you said mm-hmm. and then more on top of it, Mm -hmm. even more. Well, working with them was, yeah, it was a highlight, but it was also a major, major breakthrough because with them, they were perfectionists. Oh, yeah. So they were very good at what they wanted, and they knew what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, when I made a take, because I always felt like I was also a perfectionist, (laughs) When I was happy with what I had done, then I let them know. And it was always the first, second, or the third track. Okay. So practically everything that I'm on is the first, second, or third track.
2: That's impressive.
3: That they've used. (laughs) But... We still made from 50 to 100 tracks
2: after. I, I knew you were going to say that. Knew, <laughs> that's when you said you, 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 they took the first, second, or third track. I thought, that's impressive. Because yeah. I've heard those guys really like to hammer out a lot of tracks. Oh, yeah. yeah. They
3: hammered out. I, I didn't care. Because yeah. I already told them, I had it off my mind, yeah. that the hit was the first, second, or the third track. And uh-huh. I just let them know. Uh-huh. And then we go on from there. Oh, that's funny. and they were cool with that uh-huh. because they knew they were going to still do another fifty to a hundred tracks. That's okay. It's in the budget. did it me. It's in the budget, right? Yeah, they had no problem with their budget.
2: Look at that. Oh, that's funny because that that leads me into my next comment and question here. I was going to tell you that one of my favorite tracks on that Asia album is "Home at Last," and what I love about that track is is your performance, which is basically like a halftime shuffle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that. That track has such a great groove, and, and what I was going to ask was, you know, you know, how hard did they work you on that track? And, 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 but now you've already answered that question. Yeah, really? Well, <laughs> it, it's
3: not, no, no, it is not a problem. Uh-huh. Because the first thing that they said to me is when I first heard the track, because they had already pre recorded it two or three times right. with Chuck and a few other folks. Uh-huh. They'd said to me, well, we don't want to shovel. And we don't want all eight notes. Uh-huh. We, all, we don't want all sixteenths. You know, and and we don't want this, and don't want that, but yet we want this to be funky. Yeah. Uh-huh. I said, okay. So the first thing that I said to them, I said, then what you're looking for is the Purdy Shuffle. No, 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 we don't want any Shuffle. We don't want any Shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you don't know what the Purdy Shuffle is until you've heard it. That's right. <laughs> so why don't you listen? Take my word for it, listen, and this will fit what you are asking for. I will give you what you ask for. Uh
1: I can just hear this happening, you know. (laughs) So
3: I sat down with him and told Chuck, and said, okay, let's go here, and such and such. And then Larry Carlton, uh, Paul Griffin on uh, piano. I mean, there was no problem. Mm -hmm. They heard... Home at Last, their way, what they had been doing and they didn't like it and such and such. They had two or three versions of it. Yeah. And they didn't like it. So, as soon as I started doing what I was doing with my fingers and my hand, Chuck fell right into it on the bass. And there you go. I mean, it's all there. Paul Griffin jumps in on it and bam, he's in between the beats. And, uh, it was really, really simple. And they just totally, totally freaked out. They loved it. <laughs> they absolutely loved it. That's great. And then, then they kept asking me, Well, what did you call this? I said, It's called a Purdy Shuffle. And the reason for it and why is that it has everything in it. Yeah. You got eighth notes, you got quarter notes, you yeah, got sixteenths, you yeah. got dotted, you got triplets, wow. you got the whole works uh-huh. whole notes and half notes. So the point is, is that it's all spread over a two-bar phrase. Yeah. In order to make it work. Uh huh. So it still had my locomotion in it, mm-hmm. and the, my flowing feel. Mm-hmm.
2: So you
1: gave me exactly what they wanted, and a little bit more.
0: Thank
2: you. <laughs> I like it. That's good. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you too. You know, still staying on the topic of Steely Dan, how did you hook up with uh, Donald and Walter in the first place? Yeah.
3: Oh, I hooked up because of uh, of Chuck Rainey and Paul Griffin. Okay. But they also knew that I had been overdubbing many different songs for many different people. And I would already overdubbed some stuff for them, too, which was on their first and second album. So the thing was is that uh, Jeff McCall yeah, is the one who told them that there's a couple of things that that you really, you really ought to, you know, go with Purdy because it's his thing. Uh, and Jeff was really, he was definitely right about because he learned the Purdy shuffle, and mm-hmm. that's what Rosanna is, and he turned right, it around right. a little bit to make it work for him. Right, right. So he was in seventh heaven when uh, I was doing that and showing that to him. Yeah. But he is somebody who had foresight. And smart enough, because he was also one of the drummers they had tried for different things, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And he told them. So, he'd call Purdy.
1: So Jeff, actually, I mean, he had already gone in and recorded. Uh, he had uh, laid down some tracks already. Yeah. Pr- prior to your arriving in and putting down your shuffle on. Right. I got you. All right.
3: So his version of what he was doing mm-hmm. didn't work
1: wow That's intre- i I would have been just so curious uh bernard to, to hear what you know what some of those tracks that did not work, just from an educational perspective, just to see I wonder what Jeff was doing I mean Jeff's an amazing drummer, you know mm-hmm. and uh unfortunately he's not with us but i would have I'm still curious as to what even a great drummer threw down and laid down that he said no 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 bernard's got to lay this thing down to make it make it work that would have been very interesting to
3: did you hear because those tracks it's- it was something that he didn't know at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, if people take the time to learn what something is. When it's time, then they speak about it, and they can talk about it, and they can do it. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that uh, he had already recorded this once or twice, and it, was, it didn't work. Yeah. So it was a new thing for him, but it was the respect that he's had for sure you know another drummer right another mm-hmm.
0: person doing the job
2: mm-hmm. yeah well talking about jeff percaro you know there there've been many accounts that that i've read and i've heard about his respect for your work he, you know, you were a, a big influence on him and and uh I, I know you guys have had some opportunities to work together mm-hmm. did you guys cross was it those steely dan sessions uh, where you guys initially crossed paths
3: oh yeah was we it? crossed paths there we also crossed paths um uh, with the uh, Quincy in California, yeah with his uh partners in Ro- uh uh Toto uh-huh. the arrangers that was there I mean I had been working and doing stuff for them when uh, he wasn't there mm-hmm. I had a lot of good things, but i also i had worked and done things with his father right, right. right. Uh-huh. and his father was the one who hit me to uh to Jeff and what Jeff had been doing. Jeff had been studying me for several years. Mm -hmm, Right. (laughs) And his father is the one who, you know, hit me. So I said, well, then what? Let me go talk with him. Right, right. Let me go see him. And that's how he put us together.
1: Yeah. That's great. When you had time, uh, you know, I think some of our audience is very interested, uh, and they love Jeff Porcaro and what he what he accomplished. But in your sitting and hanging with, with Jeff, I mean what what kind of a guy was he to to sit with and to chat with and whatever? Did you have a good time to get a deeper relationship with him or
3: a very, very deep relationship. T- talk us a little Absolutely bit. Absolutely a beautiful person. Yeah. Personality personified. I mean, he really uh oh. <laughs> he, yeah. he was just seventh heaven Yeah, somebody you just wanted to be around Look at that. Mm-hmm. because it wasn't always talking and speaking about music mm-hmm. he had a real versatile thing about him uh, and one thing that we never really really talked about was politics <laughs> really no we never talked about politics uh-huh. we talk about people but we never got into politics so, I could actually I tell you the truth, I would not know what his <laughs> political thing was, yeah, but right. we never ever talked about politics.
2: well music was the language, and you know that's... Yeah,
3: music was the language and we talked about people, yeah. people that we liked, and folks that and even folks that we didn't like, right. but it was uh it was something quite mutual, yeah. it was the mutual respect that we had for one another for so many things, and we very, very seldom. We never talked on a negative side. Didn't yeah. have to. Yeah, it was always positive about what we were doing, yeah. and I was just pleased with it. That's neat. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, thinking about your background and, and Jeff's background. You know, you said you came from a family that didn't have uh, any musical influence in his family as complete musical oh influence. And mm-hmm. and they both turned out to be, you know, two of the greatest drummers on the planet. And mm-hmm. it, even though he was younger than you and, and, you know, probably a generation or a generation and a half apart, did you learn anything from him?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah? Oh, yes. Taste. Yeah. Taste and touch.
2: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. You
3: know, and mm-hmm. uh, the thing is that so many of the drummers... That were coming along didn't read. Right, yeah. right. And here is somebody who was impeccable. Right. His reading was. That was his forte. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he was excellent, excellent reader. Yeah. But he not only played the drums, but he played the piano. He played all the percussionism. Right, right. And the keyboard was one of the things that he played, and he played it well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's why he could write songs. Mm-hmm. And just. A nice, nice person. Yeah. And, uh, and that he took after his father. Yeah. I, 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 and I know that.
0: Special that's, family. Uh,
3: that's Spe- how I always felt. His mother and father were very, very close to me. And they used to tell me everything about what he used to say and, and how he felt about me. Mm-hmm. And I always got it from them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then, I, then and when we'd be together and stuff, it was just all love. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it, it was the thing is, is that I never brought things up to, oh, you've been talking about me again and this, that, and no. <laughs> never went there, never, ever went there or had to go there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well,
3: but yeah. it was a good love affair. We, me. I mean, we enjoyed one another immensely any time that we were together.
2: That's neat. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing those words about Jeff. That's fantastic. Yep. Looking back on your career, you've played with a historically diverse collection of you know some of the best known artists ever, such as Aretha Franklin. I'm going to name all these people, not everybody, but you know, <laughs> that'd, take all, that'd be the whole possibility. i will see you tomorrow, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Aretha Franklin and B.B. King and James Brown, Steely Dan, Marvin Gaye, the Jackson Jeez. Five. Gladys Knight, Miles Davis, Quincy Jones, Holland Oates, Percy Sledge, Louis Armstrong. and the list goes on. I just wanted to throw out some names for our listeners who, who didn't realize all of this, but now this is an interesting question, but if you were to ask all of these artists what was the one thing about you or your playing that really captured them, would they all point to one particular quality, or would they, or, or would they all have one or different answers? No,
3: one quality, one quality. Really? My good looks. <laughs> and on that note, and on that
2: note, we welcome. Uh, we, we want to
1: thank you so much for your time, Bernard. <laughs> You're good looking. Oh
3: my! <laughs> good um, answer. I am just so happy to know that <laughs> I did my job, and uh, I was always <laughs> informed <laughs> to do what was necessary.
0: You got yeah. it.
3: Yeah. The thing for me is my versatility is. What has kept me alive and kept me on top uh, of my game all these years? Sure, you know, I play right. anything, anywhere with anybody, and have no problem. Cause <laughs> the, just to give you a good example, uh, my latest biggest record was uh, Alan Jackson.
1: Look at that! Mm-hmm.
3: And he sold triple sure, platinum. Oh, sure, and it's a wonderful feeling to know that I can go anywhere, any place in the world, and play with anybody. Right, sure. right. Because knowing the music. Right, exactly. But I know what my gift is. My gift is the gift of music. Mm -hmm. Period. It doesn't matter what kind. I gravitate to whatever it is. At the time that I'm doing it, whatever it is I'm doing, I become part of the entity. And that's cool. And that's, uh, that's what my teacher used to tell me. I thought he used to say all oh, this is shut me up, but I now know that yes, I do have the gift, and it's a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> feeling.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, you talked to us uh, just a little before the interview, and you said you are your your schedule is completely booked right now. Tell us a little bit about the stuff you're working on right now, and the things that uh, you know uh, we're already sort of ending towards the the end of the year already. But what's lined up for you that that you can tell us about of uh, projects that we'll see?
0: Oh.
3: Well, I have uh, two or three tours that has to be done. All four bands are working. Mm-hmm. Galt McDermott, the man from Hair. Uh-huh. We have right. a band called the New Pulse Band. Okay. And uh, we just got finished. We're not doing Carnegie Hall this year because we just did a big theater in Staten Island. And they, one of the other groups is... Uh, the Godfather's of Groove. We used to be called Masters of Groove.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah.
3: Uh, and it's now called the Godfather's Groove. So we'll be going to uh, London and uh, Italy, Cleveland, uh, Pittsburgh, places like California. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's still to come in the next two months.
2: Is that with Reuben and, Wilson?
3: Yes, that's with Reuben Wilson and Grant Green Jr. Okay, mm-hmm. right. And then I have the Hudson River Rats. And they're going to Japan with me, okay with wow. uh, Chuck Rainey. oh cool <laughs> oh, very cool. cool, and uh we have many, many different kind of jobs and things to do, and then i uh the all star band I still have things to do there, plus clinics and master class and my teaching That's so cool. I'll be doing that with uh the new school the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And I also do Five Town College. That's awesome. And this is all through November and December.
2: She is wow. Well, just a few minutes ago, you mentioned that you do some instructional, you do some teaching in mm-hmm. courses, correct? Yeah. Well, one thing I hope that your students learn from you is beyond the playing aspect is your work ethic because right. you seem to have worked harder than any other musician we've ever talked to.
3: Well, I have always uh, been told the one thing that you do, it's still a job. Yep. If mm-hmm. you treat it with respect, that is what's going to take you around the world. That's right. And I, I believe that. I believe that very strongly. That's why I can get along with anyone. I'm. I know I'm a band leader. I also know I'm a side man. Yeah. And you do the job because that's what it is. Right. It's a job. Mm-hmm. You got
1: it. Yep. Well, that's Nate Bernard. Thank you so much for spending time with me and Rick on Inside Music Cast. My plasma. Sir. And uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, be, uh, we'll be looking forward to checking in with you occasionally as uh, we head into the new year. Mm-hmm. On behalf of Rick Such, I'm Eddie Cabello. Thanks for being with
2: us on Inside Music Cast. Thanks a lot,
1: Bernard.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: Special thanks to Bernard Purdy for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.
0: Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.